Hey, Christ community, thanks for tuning in and letting me be a part of your spiritual journey today. A special greeting to any of you who are maybe watching, engaging in this online service, on-demand service for the first time. We are so glad you're here. We are in the midst of a, a teaching series entitled Kingdom Culture. In this series, we are looking at a very famous sermon that Jesus gave in the book of Matthew, chapters 5 to 7 where Jesus is talking about what it looks like to be people of his kingdom, what it looks like to align our lives with Jesus' kingdom rather than the kingdom of the world. And as we have been talking about over and over again in this series, these two kingdoms are radically different. The kingdom of this world is a power over kingdom where power is used to control others and advance our own kingdom and our own desires, whereas the kingdom of Jesus is a power under kingdom that embraces powerlessness and mercy and gentleness and purity of heart. And here's the irony of these two kingdoms. While it initially sounds like the kingdom of the world would be a far more effective way to get things done, the opposite is actually the case. What Jesus is describing in this section of scripture is a beautifully subversive way to truly change the world, to truly influence the world around you in a genuinely transformative way. And that is especially true with the verse that we're looking at today. In Matthew 5, verse 9, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. I mean, this, this really is an amazing statement when you think about it. Jesus is saying that one of the distinguishing characteristics of his followers is that we are to be people of peace. We are to be people who are actively and intentionally striving to bring relational peace into whatever environments we find ourselves in. That's what the word peacemaker means. We make peace. Now, by talking about the need for peacemakers, Jesus is acknowledging that peace is not the norm. In our world, conflict and strife are the norm, right? We see it right now in places like Myanmar and, and Syria. We see it in our own nation in terms of racial strife and political tension. We see it in families where conflict shatters and damages relationships between husband and wife or children and parents. Conflict is all around us. It is a regular part of life on this planet, which makes Jesus' words here even more significant. Part of our calling as Christ followers is to bring peace into our conflict-ridden world. And that's where Jesus' words expose a significant problem today. Are we as Christ followers responding to conflict any differently than the world is? You know, one, one of my most discouraging moments as a Christ follower occurred just a few months ago in January as I watched people storming the Capitol building, causing our congressional leaders and their staffs to run for cover, you know, fearing for their lives. Five people died. I mean, it, it was horrible to see. But what made it even worse for me was when I saw one of the central figures of this mob carrying a cross. And when he got to the chambers in which Congress meets, he and others were praying and quoting scripture. And my heart just sank as, as I thought of the millions of people around the world who will see that image and think that's what Christianity looks like. Storming buildings, stirring fear, and then loudly proclaiming 
their allegiance to Jesus. I feel like Jesus' words here are a major wake-up call to anyone who claims to follow him. Jesus is saying, if you truly want to follow me, if you truly want to accurately represent my heart for this world, then be a person of peace. Be a person who actively pursues relational healing and reconciliation wherever you are. Now, we've got to understand something. This is not a minor side issue. When you read the New Testament, you realize that this is at the heart of the gospel. Jesus died on the cross, not only to restore our relationship with God, he died on the cross to provide a way for our relationships to be restored. This is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 2, when he was writing to a church that was in the midst of some racial conflict between Gentiles and Jews. And, and, and Paul says to them of Jesus, he says this, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. See, in the gospel, we actually have a way to bring peace to our divided, conflicted world. Because we have peace with God in Christ, we can pursue peace with others. And, and what's so important to note is that Paul, in this passage, is not just talking about peace with those people who are far from God. Paul is primarily talking here about peace between brothers and sisters in Christ who are in conflict. I mean, this past year has been horrible in this regard. In my 31 years of pastoring here, I can't remember a time in which Christians were so divided, so passionately divided over masks, restrictions, racial issues, the election, politics, vaccines. I mean, these things have split churches, divided families, stirred up dissension and anger. It has not been a stellar year for Christians in terms of peacemaking with each other, nor in terms of modeling to the world what it looks like to be peacemakers. As author Daniel Taylor has pointed out, let me quote here, he says, the sad truth is that in our battle with a hostile culture, we have adopted the culture's tactics. We fight ugliness with ugliness, distortion with distortion, and sarcasm with sarcasm. We treat non-Christians the same way they treat us. And then he asks the really important question, why is that? Why don't we follow the way of Jesus? Well, here was his conclusion. It's because we really don't trust the gospel, he writes. While Jesus' teaching about loving our enemies, turning the other cheek, etc., makes for great sermons, in our bones we appear not to believe that they are practical for everyday living in a hostile society. Ouch. Our struggle in being peacemakers is ultimately a gospel issue. Do we trust the gospel Jesus proclaimed and then demonstrated? Dying on a cross, giving up his life in order to bring peace to others. See, Jesus was the ultimate peacemaker. And, and that doesn't mean that Jesus kept his mouth shut and didn't say anything. No, that's, that's not peacemaking. That's peace faking keeping our thoughts to ourselves, not wanting to rock the boat. That, that's peace faking. Jesus is calling us not to a timid, passive faking of peace. No, Jesus is calling us to courageously 
pursue peace, and in doing so, to put the gospel on display for everyone to see. Okay, so how do we cultivate this peacemaking life? Well, I, wanna, I want us to look at a passage in the book of James where James describes in more detail what peacemaking looks like. James 3, 17 and 18. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. I love that image. When we sow in when we sow peace, we reap a harvest of righteousness. Peacemaking is an incredibly powerful thing. It is a life of blessing to use the words of Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers. So from from this passage and a few others, I want to highlight four practices that can help us be peacemakers rather than peace breakers or peace fakers. Okay, first principle, start with your own heart. Immediately after this description of peacemaking, James writes these words, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. When a disagreement or conflict happens, our natural tendency is to focus all of our energy on the other person, what they did, what they said, how wrong they are. And the reason we do that is because we naturally want to justify our position. We want to justify why we are right. But James, in typical blunt fashion, shines a light on this and exposes the dark underbelly that we don't want to look at our own motives, our own desires, our insecurity, our pride, our jealousy, our need to be right, our need to win an argument. See, these things hinder us from truly seeing the conflict from Jesus' perspective. We find ourselves increasingly blinded by our own anger, which, as we learned about a few weeks ago, causes the rational frontal cortex of our brain to take a vacation And so we do and say things that seem perfectly justified in the moment, but they aren't helpful at all in bringing peace because we aren't willing to look at how our own sinful desires are impacting this disagreement or conflict. I vividly remember a conflict I had with a family member a few years ago. This person had asked me not to do something, but I felt she was out of line in asking me not to do that. And so I did it anyway, and I felt perfectly justified in doing so. Well, not surprisingly, it damaged our relationship, but but I kept justifying in my mind why my response was totally appropriate. It was her issue. This went on for a couple of years. And then one day God reminded me of that incident and he pointed out how it wasn't her issue that caused the conflict. It was my pride. So I emailed her and apologized for what I had done. And then she received my apology and and apologize as well for how she had reacted to that. Peace eventually happened, but only when I was willing to own my own contribution to the conflict. When you and I find our blood pressure rising, our frustration level increasing in a relational disagreement, the first thing, the first thing we need to do is to go to Jesus and examine our own heart. 
and be willing to own and confess our own sinful desires. You know, when I look at many of the conflicts that happened in our nation this past year, I feel like an apology would have gone a long way. But rarely does that happen. What happens far more often is that lines get drawn in the sand, emotions get elevated, and we spend all of our time justifying our actions and positions. Okay, so genuine peacemaking starts with our own heart. Second principle, humanize, don't demonize. This is huge. In so many of the conflicts that happen on social media and so many of the disagreements Christians are having over masks or politics or whatever, what often happens is that we demonize those that we disagree with. We weaponize our position so that anyone who disagrees with us is evil. For, for instance, in, the, in this last election, I heard some Christians saying, you cannot be a Christian and vote for Joe Biden. And then I heard other Christians saying, I don't see how any true follower of Jesus could vote for a man like Donald Trump. Now, I'm not interested in, in wading into the weeds on either side of that, but notice how each side of that was portraying the other side. They were questioning these other people's faith in Christ because of who they were voting for. They were demonizing brothers and sisters in Christ who didn't agree with them. When the reality was millions of Christ followers prayerfully voted for Trump and millions of Christ followers prayerfully voted for Biden. Each had their own reasons for doing so. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to agree with their reasons, but it does mean that we dare not demonize someone just because they disagree with us. I mean, look again at James' words in James 3. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy. Peacemakers are considerate and full of mercy. They value every person, even those they disagree with. They don't assume the worst about them, that they're evil or whatever. They assume the best about them, and they honor them as fellow image bearers of God. And I mean, it, it pains me to have to say it, but this is so needed right now, especially in the body of Christ. I mean, I got a, a few weeks ago, I got a short, angry email from someone in our church, someone I love, who was accusing our church of things we didn't do. And we immediately reached out to have a conversation, but he was unwilling to even hear our perspective. He'd already decided to leave the church. You know, I, I felt like he had demonized us rather than valuing a, us enough to talk about it. That was hard especially when it was a brother in Christ. I mean, look, I, I realize that conflicts and disagreements happen in the church. Heck, they happen in the New Testament. Conflict is normal. But how we handle conflict as Christians is not supposed to be normal. It's supposed to be loving and honoring of others, even those with whom we disagree. Which leads to the third principle of peacemaking. Seek to understand before trying to be understood. From a biblical perspective, when we disagree with or we have a conflict with someone, we are to go to that person and have a conversation with them, not go to 10 other people and talk about what happened to us. No, we are to go to the person. Jesus makes this very clear in Matthew chapter 18. Go to the person. So when we do that, here's what often happens. We come to that conversation locked and loaded. We've got our arguments in place. We are ready to defend our position. 
What we don't often come to that conversation with is an open heart to really listen to what they believe and why. Earlier in the book of James, James urges us to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Often we do the exact opposite. We are quick to speak, quick to become angry, and slow to listen, which is one reason our nation is so polarized right now. We, we are shout at a, shouting at each other from a distance, but we're not sitting down over a cup of coffee and having an open-hearted conversation. And by, by open-hearted conversation, I mean one in which we start the conversation by saying, hey, I'm really curious how you came to this position on this particular issue. I'm, just tell me about that. I'm really curious how you came to that position. We, 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 we are to come with curiosity and a desire to understand rather than with our arguments locked and loaded. And here's what's so powerful about that. When we come with an open heart, we actually might find that our perspective changes. We may not fully agree with this person, but we will often have a deeper appreciation for an understanding of why they believe what they do. So let me, let me tell you a little story. In the, in the late 1930s in Germany, as Hitler's Nazism was growing, there was a, a law enacted where if a German soldier walked by, you had to stop and do the Heil Hitler salute. So there was a pastor in Germany at that time named Paul Schneider, and he refused to do this. He felt like he was compromising his allegiance to Christ. And so he refused to do it. And he was eventually arrested, and he was sent to what was basically a concentration camp. And even in that camp, with the threat of violence hanging over his head, he would refuse to do the Heil Hitler salute. So he was killed by the German authorities. Now, fast forward a few months. Imagine that his widow, he left a wife and young children. Imagine that his widow was sitting with some fellow believers in a pub in Germany. And in walked some Nazi soldiers. And a young pastor who had just spoken at her church immediately stood up and did the Heil Hitler salute. How do you think this widow would have felt in that moment? Her husband, Paul, was killed because he was unwilling to salute. And here is this young pastor standing up and saying, Heil Hitler. Now, we, we could draw all sorts of conclusions about this pastor. He's a compromiser. He was fearful. He had weak faith. He was a disgrace as a pastor. But before we do that, let me tell you his name. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, a name well-known to many Christians as an example of faith and courage. You see, Bonhoeffer also hated Nazism, but he believed that the best way to overthrow Hitler was to go along with the whole saluting thing. He didn't believe it. He just went along with it so that Bonhoeffer would be able to continue to create an underground movement of pastors who would resist Hitler's ideology. So here we have these two godly men who came to very different conclusions about how to resist Nazism. Who are we to say that one approach was right and the other was wrong? Do, do you see why it is so important to take the time to listen, to seek to understand why someone believes the way they do or is behaving the way they do, rather than assuming that anyone who doesn't agree with us is an idiot or has a lack of faith or whatever? 
I mean, what, what if we valued them enough to hear how they came to their position? And even if we still disagreed, we would at least be loving them the way Christ does. Which leads to the fourth peacemaking principle. Share, don't declare. Earlier, I talked about how peacemaking does not mean silence. It doesn't mean that we, that we don't share our perspective. In order for genuine peace and reconciliation to happen, both sides need to communicate their perspective. Whether in a marriage or in a work conflict or social media or whatever, it's so critical. Both sides are able to share their perspective, right? The critical issue is how do we share our perspective? Do, do we actually share it or do we declare it? The, the word declare speaks of an official emphatic statement of truth. A declaration is not up for dialogue. Once it's been declared, that's it. See, when we power up and make declarative statements, it tends to shut down the dialogue. The other person senses that we're not really interested in discussing this, or they're afraid of our anger if they disagree. So what do they do? They just politely nod, all the while thinking to themselves, I'm not sharing my perspective This person's mind is made up. They don't really care what I think. This conversation is basically over. And maybe they're nodding and we think they're listening. No, they've they've already shut down. We think we're being heard, but we're not. We're just declaring things. A friend of mine was kind of loud in elementary school, telling everyone what she thought. Well, one day uh, while driving home after a a parent-teacher conference, her mom said to her, you know, nobody wants to hear the loudest person in the room. They have to hear them. See, do you want people to want to hear you or to have to hear you? I feel like we as Christians have a a pretty poor reputation in this regard. We, We are often known for sharing our thoughts without listening to other people's perspectives. And then we'll walk away from that interaction feeling good about ourselves. Oh, I spoke the truth. But we did it in such a way that caused the other person to close their heart and to not really hear us. I love how Paul states this in Ephesians 4.15 when he encourages us to speak the truth in love. That is a perfect description of peacemaking. The first three principles we talked about, start with your own heart, humanize, don't demonize, and then seek to understand. Those are, that, that's what love looks like. It, love looks like humility and value and honoring this person and learn, listening to their perspective. You see, when we, when we lead with those three things, when we lead with love, there then is often an opportunity to share our perspective, what we believe is truth. And there is a far more likelihood that we will actually be heard by this person. In that powerful place, God can bring relational healing, mutual understanding, deepening trust. In, in other words, peace in the workplace in the classroom, in our families, in our marriage, in, in our interactions with, on social media, in our in conversations with neighbors, we can truly be peacemakers. Now look, I get it. This is not the easiest route. It is much easier to distance ourselves and demonize people and raise our voice in making our point. I mean, that, that's, the end, that, that's much easier, but the end result of that is peace-breaking hurt feelings, anger, closed hearts, and ultimately not representing Jesus very well. Peacemaking is hard, but it's worth it. It is is not only a beautiful and powerful demonstration of the gospel, 
it is also a critically needed pathway to bring healing to our relationships and healing to our broken planet. Amen. Let's, let's pray together. So I want to invite you, just as you quiet your heart, just invite you to ask Jesus this question, where, Jesus, where are you inviting me to bring peace? And what would that look like? Maybe it means starting with your own heart. Looking at your own desires and motives in, a, in an area of conflict. Maybe it means humanizing another person rather than demonizing them. Maybe it means seeking to understand, taking time to listen or to read things, just to listen to someone who is not articulating what you believe or what you think and you're willing to listen. Or maybe it means sharing but not declaring, just really um, speaking the truth in love. Whatever Jesus is saying to you, would you take a moment and just ask for his help in that to be a peacemaker? Jesus, we need your help. We need your power to live as peace makers. We want to follow you as king of our hearts and lives. Would you give us the courage and the humility to pursue peace in all of our relationships and encounters with people? God, may we truly live as peace makers, as the peacemaking children of God that you call us to Use us to bring healing and restoration to this broken world. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for being a peacemaker for us. That we have peace with God because of your willingness to lay down your life on the cross. We thank you for who you are. Thank you for the gospel. And we want to live out the implications of that gospel in all of our relationships. And so we pray that you'd help us do that. In Jesus' name, amen.